Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Tammany Hall. Episode 7, Certain Self-Created Societies. Thank you for joining us once again. Last time we looked at Aaron Burr's political rise during the first years of the 1790s and used his career as an entry point to consider the early growth of partisan politics. As we saw, Alexander Hamilton's economic program spurred intense debate, which forged new ideological and regional divisions in American politics. Now we'll move on to consider another major source of the growing partisan divide, the American response to the French Revolution. As in the previous episode, we'll consider the views of prominent political leaders like Hamilton and Jefferson. However, Debates around the revolution in France were never limited to a narrow band of elites in the upper echelons of the government. Increasingly, Americans engaged in a new style of mass politics, which took the form of public protests, angry pieces in the popular press, and at least the threat of violence. Partisan societies were at the forefront of this movement. Most notably, a number of Democratic-Republican societies were formed across the country by a diverse array of individuals who were united in their opposition to the Washington administration. Before long, these groups gained sufficient notoriety to draw a pointed rebuke from the President himself in his State of the Union address. As we'll see, support for the Democratic-Republican societies petered out before too long. Still, Their brief moment of political relevance raised fundamental questions about the role of mass politics in the American system. On the one hand, there was a dawning realization among figures from across the political spectrum that a Republican form of government, premised on broad electoral participation, required some degree of mass organization and engagement. Yet, this recognition was matched by a deeply held fear of unfettered democracy. In the late 18th century, it was assumed in many quarters that the will of the people would necessarily devolve into the rule of the mob. Furthermore, the tools of mass politics, fundraising, canvassing, and electioneering, were all considered deeply distasteful. These tensions remained at the core of one of the few organizations to survive the demise of the Democratic-Republican societies. Hint, I'm talking about Tammany. When the French Revolution first broke out in the summer of 1789, the American response was generally positive across the political spectrum. It was always a somewhat awkward fact that the American Republic's first ally was an absolute monarchy. Now, the French seemed to be making their own push for liberty and freedom, just as the Americans had done a decade earlier. In fact, the fact that Washington's surrogate son, the Marquis de Lafayette, assumed a prominent leadership position in the early stages of the Revolution strengthened American enthusiasm. As the staunch Federalist John Marshall later recalled, quote, We were all strongly attached to France, Scarcely any man more strongly than myself, I sincerely believed human liberty to depend in great measure on the success of the French Revolution. However, American opinion became increasingly polarized as a series of events in the early 1790s pushed the French revolutionaries in an ever more radical direction. 
In June 1791, Louis XVI and the royal family made an ill-fated attempt to flee the country. After he was caught, the king was brought back to Paris as a prisoner. The following April, the French declared war on Austria and Prussia, starting more than two decades of fighting on the European continent. On August 10, 1792, a group of radicals stormed the Tuileries Palace, capturing Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, and effectively ending the French monarchy. This uprising was followed by the September Massacres, when more than 1,000 prisoners were put to death by supporters of the revolution. These events reached a dramatic crescendo in January 1793, when Louis XVI was executed for treason. Marie Antoinette followed her husband to the guillotine in October. All right, that's some of the most significant events in world history dealt with in a minute. Back in the U.S., Republicans generally approved of these dramatic developments. Jefferson had been present for the initial stages of the revolution as the American ambassador in France. He had even reviewed and revised an early draft of the Declaration of the Rights of Man, which he saw as of a piece with his own Declaration of Independence. In the years to come, Jefferson retained a romantic sense of the revolution's prospects, even as France lurched first from the reign of terror and then onto Napoleonic dictatorship. Upon the execution of Louis XVI, Jefferson remarked that it was right to punish the king, quote, like other criminals. By the start of 1793, he was actively cheering the French war effort. Quote, the liberty of the whole earth was depending on the issue of the contest, and, rather than it should have failed, I would have seen half the earth desolated. It was his hope that the revolution's triumph would, quote, bring at length kings, nobles, and priests to the scaffolds which they have been so long deluging with human blood. Federalists responded to events in Europe quite differently. While Hamilton and his supporters were committed to a republican form of government, their ideology tended to value order and stability. If necessary, popular passions would have to be tempered by the sound judgments of enlightened elites. It should come as no surprise, then, that Hamilton tried to distinguish America's revolutionary experience from its increasingly radical French counterpart. As he wrote in the spring of 1793, quote, Would to heaven that we could discern in the mirror of French affairs the same humanity, the same decorum, the same gravity, the same order, the same dignity, the same solemnity which distinguished the course of the American Revolution. Other Federalists were even more strident. Oliver Wolcott Jr., Hamilton's eventual successor as Secretary of the Treasury, said that he would rather America, quote, be erased from existence than infected with French principles. Beyond these ideological differences, American debates over the French Revolution intensified following France's declaration of war on Britain in 1793. Previously, the revolution had been a far-off affair, confined to the European continent. For most American observers, things were more theoretical than real. Now, however, this was a conflict between globe-spanning empires, 
Britain and France both had colonial holdings in the Western Hemisphere, and the war was likely to find its way into America's backyard. Clearly, debates within the United States would have to take on a new urgency. France and the United States had, of course, been allies during the American War of Independence. The Franco-American alliance was still nominally in effect a decade after that war's conclusion. The Jeffersonian Republicans urged the Washington administration to honor this alliance by taking an explicitly pro-French line in the emerging conflict with Britain. After all, what could be better than aiding a loyal ally in its struggle for liberty against the crowned heads of old Europe, including America's erstwhile colonial master? Unsurprisingly, Hamilton and the Federalists were wary of this approach. Not only were they generally uncomfortable with the increasingly radical direction of the French Revolution, but they now had the added fear of antagonizing the powerful British Navy. American commercial interests depended on safe and uninterrupted transatlantic travel. The merchants and financiers who formed the backbone of the Federalist Party were none too keen on the idea of picking a fight with the Royal Navy. As in so many other cases, Washington came down on Hamilton's side in this debate. In April 1793, the president issued a proclamation of neutrality, which declared that the United States would remain, quote, friendly and impartial to all sides in the war. Individual Americans were urged not to offer any aid to the belligerent powers. While this proclamation set the American government's policy, it did not stem the tide of public debate. Republicans, led by James Madison, decried Washington's proclamation as both a violation of the alliance with France and an unconstitutional usurpation of executive power. Federalists were attacked as the stooges of monarchical Britain. The neutrality policy would ultimately pay a key role in Jefferson's departure from the cabinet. He resigned as Secretary of State at the end of 1793. Beyond these elite debates, the French Revolution spurred a bout of popular agitation unseen in America since the ratification of the Constitution. To the extent we can gauge these things, American public opinion had, from the outset, been broadly sympathetic to the French Revolutionary cause. Over the course of 1793, supporters of France organized into groups which came to be known collectively as the Democratic-Republican Societies. Starting in Pennsylvania, these societies soon spread throughout the country. By the end of 1794, there were more than 30 of them. Members of these societies generally hailed from the, quote, middling sort. In the country, they were small-scale yeoman farmers. In the cities, they were artisans and mechanics. There was no centralized structure or organization, but they were united by opposition to Hamilton's economic policies hatred of the so-called aristocrats who dominated American political life, and, above all, admiration for the radicalism of the French Revolution. Though ostensibly supportive of Jefferson and Madison's anti-administration agenda, the Democratic-Republican societies were by no means deferential to these genteel Republicans. These organizations favored a much more raucous and democratic view of politics. 
Their activities were not narrowly focused on electoral politics, but included often rowdy rallies, vituperative proclamations in support of the sovereignty of the people. In the 1790s, the word democracy did not have the generally positive connotation we might give it today. It was associated with unbridled mob rule. To call someone a Democrat would be like calling someone a demagogue or rabble-rouser. However, the Democratic-Republican societies embraced the term as a badge of honor. By the end of the decade, their name had been adopted more broadly, and the Jeffersonian faction would be known as the Democratic-Republican Party, the name by which uh, it is generally remembered today. Just as these societies were starting to organize, American foreign policy debates received a dramatic jolt with the arrival of the new French ambassador, Edmond Charles Genet, known to history as Citizen Genet. Only 29 years old, supremely arrogant and headstrong, Genet lacked the politesse expected from a seasoned diplomat. His selection as the new ambassador reflected the French government's desire to move past the refined niceties of traditional European diplomacy. From the start, Genet had one objective in America, to gain active U.S. support for the French war effort. If the Washington administration insisted on maintaining its neutrality policy, the French ambassador had no qualms about going over the government's head and pleading his case directly to the American public. Citizen Genet received an enthusiastic reception when he landed in Charleston, South Carolina. As he made the month-long journey up to the capital in Philadelphia, Genet was routinely greeted by cheering crowds singing the Marseillaise and waving the revolutionary French tricolor flag. In direct contradiction of Washington's neutrality proclamation, Genet encouraged American citizens to join the French war effort as privateers and launch attacks on British and Spanish colonies in the Americas. In his travels, Genet met directly with leaders of the Democratic-Republican societies. The societies, in turn, organized pro-French rallies, complete with model guillotines and toasts in support of the Jacobin government. Federalists looked on these activities with unreserved horror. Vice President Adams condemned this behavior as, quote, terrorism excited by Genet. He would later recall that, quote, 10,000 people in the streets of Philadelphia day after day threatened to drag Washington out of his house and effect a revolution in the government or compel it to declare war in favor of the French Revolution and against England. Though remaining officially nonpartisan, the Tammany Society, with its fierce criticism of New York's political aristocracy, had much in common with the Democratic-Republican societies. To the chagrin of its remaining Federalist membership, Tammany held regular pro-French banquets and parades. In May 1793, a French warship, L'Embuscade, docked off the port of New York. Tammany members treated the crew to a raucous greeting. When a British frigate arrived soon after, sailors from the two ships engaged in regular street fights. This culminated in a two-hour exchange of cannon fire between the two vessels off Sandy Hook. The French were declared the victors in this naval duel to the immense satisfaction of thousands of onlooking New Yorkers. 
Before leaving town, Lambuscade's colors were ceremonially presented to the Tammany Society in a show of friendship. Before long, Citizen Genet himself arrived in New York, proclaiming, The whole city will fall before me. Tammany enthusiastically hosted the French ambassador in a series of banquets, and he met regularly with the city's most prominent anti-administration leaders. It was around this time that the English-born poet Anne Julia Hatton wrote her opera called Tammany or the Indian Chief. An ardent admirer of Genet, Hatton filled the work with bold pronouncements in support of liberty and equality. The opera was an immediate success on the New York stage, and it helped cement Tammany's association with these Republican values. Perhaps more significantly, it is considered to be the oldest surviving libretto written by a woman. Before long, however, the political activity brought about by Genet and the Democratic-Republican societies ran out of steam. Speeches and parades were one thing, but few Americans had any real appetite for war with the powerful British. It was generally agreed that Genet had outrageously overstepped the mark in his criticisms of Washington and the American government. In the end, even Jefferson would side with the great national hero over this haughty interloper. Events back in France brought about Genet's final downfall. By 1794, the Jacobins under Maximilien Robespierre had assumed power and the reign of terror was in full swing. Genet, who was associated with the rival Girondin faction, was ordered to return to France. He fully understood that this would almost certainly mean an appointment with the guillotine. Left with no alternative, Genet took the humiliating step of begging Washington for asylum in the United States. The president magnanimously granted this one-time critic's request. In time, Genet married Governor George Clinton's daughter, Cornelia, and he settled in the Hudson Valley, where he remained for the rest of his life. A further blow to the Democratic-Republican societies came in the summer of 1794, when a group of farmers in western Pennsylvania took up arms to combat enforcement of a federal excise tax on distilled liquor. The government became alarmed as this whiskey rebellion spread and threatened an attack on Pittsburgh. Washington organized a sizable force of 13,000 militiamen and volunteers, which easily dispersed the rebels. Public opinion fully backed the president. As with Genet, most Americans found the Whiskey Rebellion too radical. Even sympathetic voices, like the New York City Democratic-Republican Society, criticized, quote, the too hasty and violent resistance of our brethren in the west of Pennsylvania. Washington, striking while the iron was hot, sought to take advantage of this moment, and he went on the offensive against these groups that had caused him so many political headaches for the past year and a half. In his annual message to Congress, Washington explicitly linked the Democratic-Republican societies to the unrest in Pennsylvania. In a famous passage of this speech, he attacked, quote, certain self-created societies that had assumed the tone of condemnation. He was even more forthright in private. 
writing that the societies intended, quote, to sow among the people the seeds of jealousy and distrust of the government by destroying all confidence in the administration of it. With this change in the political climate, the Democratic-Republican societies soon withered away. The less partisan Tammany Society was able to survive. However, most of Tammany's Federalist members walked out after they failed to pass a resolution in support of the president's message. From now on, Tammany would be ever more clearly associated with the Republican Party. What Tammany needed to further its development as a political organization was a highly ambitious and tactically astute leader. Luckily, there was just such a figure on hand in the form of New York's junior senator, Aaron Burr. Well, I think that will just about do it for us today. Next time, we'll get caught up on Burr's wheelings and dealings as a member of the U.S. Senate, and we'll see as he takes the reins of the Tammany Society during the lead-up to one of the most consequential presidential elections in American history. In the meantime, please do follow the show on Twitter and Instagram, or feel free to shoot me an email at TammanyHallPodcast at gmail.com. Also, it would be really helpful if you rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it really helps the show uh, with one of those almighty algorithms, and it gets the show out there for more people to see. Anyhow, thanks for listening.